As we go into our worship time, worship through the study of God's Word, I will invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. Isaiah 44. We have been going through this section between Isaiah chapter 40 and chapter 53. We're not going to cover every chapter because some of the things in that section repeat similar themes. So, for example, we, if you notice we are skipping over chapter 43, I would invite you in your devotional time to go back and read chapter 43, um, but we are pressing on and going to chapter 44 today. So when you, when you get there, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? Well, let's read it together. Isaiah 44. Starting in verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. It shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. The name himself, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old, from of old, and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and all the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works over it with the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arms. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree, or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the other half, he eats meat. He, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. 
And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. <clears throat> a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, for you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will drive your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. This morning I want to begin by asking a bit of a simple question. What are you devoted to? What are you devoted to? What in this life captures your devotion? What captivates you, drawing in your time attention and focus? What devotion fills you with joy? Is it God? Or maybe is it other things? The Lord Jesus himself, remember in Matthew chapter 6, he said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Our passage, I think, today is, is about devotion. And God, throughout this passage, is asking, who are you going to be devoted to? Our passage has three sections, and so we have three points this morning. First of all, we should be devoted to God because we belong to him. Verses 1 and 5. Secondly, we should be devoted to God because there is no other God. Verses 6 to 20. And thirdly, we should be devoted to God because the only God to whom we belong has declared that our sins are gone. So why should we be devoted to God? Because we belong to him because there is no other God, and because he has declared that our sins are gone. And so I invite you to look with me at the beginning of our chapter, Isaiah 44, verses 1 to 5, our first section. We see here that Jacob slash Israel is addressed as God's servant once again. We have seen that before in this section that we're studying together. We've seen that several times now in this section between chapters 40 and 53. 
where God addresses Israel or Jacob as my servant. And once again, God says two times in verses 1 and 2, he calls Israel his chosen one. He has chosen Israel. He said that before too. God is emphasizing this point over and over again. We ask, why is he doing that? Well, it is to constantly reassure tiny little Israel surrounded by their enemies that they belong to God. And in verse 2, if you look with me there, God goes to lengths in order to emphasize this point, saying, you belong to me. What does he say here in verse 2? He says that he has personally made them. But even more than that, he says that he has personally formed them in the womb. What else do we see here in verse 2? God even calls Jacob by a special and tender name here. He calls them Jeshurun. Did you know that God calls Israel by this intimate name only four times in all of Scripture? Here, in this verse, plus three more times in the book of Deuteronomy. It means upright one, but is used as a, a term of endearment from God to his people. And so here he does it yet again. God addresses the Israel of his, uh, or God assures Israel of his love for them with this tender and intimate name, Jeshurun. They don't have to fear if God has made them, if he has formed them in the womb, if he has promised to help them, and if he calls them intimately by the name that he's given them, and if he has chosen them. Now how will God bless them? Well, we see this in verse 3. How will God bless Israel? Well, verse 3 tells us that God will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. This is a picture of God's material blessing, that he will restore them, he will nourish them. But the second half of the verse, verse 3, goes further. That God will go beyond mere physical and material blessing to the greater spiritual blessing, that he will pour out his very spirit, the Holy Spirit, upon Israel. And not just for one generation only, but spiritual blessing for continuing generations. And then in verse 5, we see the description of what a spiritually healthy people looks like. Verse 5 says, This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another one will call upon the name of Jacob, and, and another will write on his hand, The Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. When the Holy Spirit of the living God has been poured out upon a people. They are eager to be identified as His. They want nothing more than to be known as belonging to Him. This is an attitude not of fear, but of confidence in the Lord. We even see here that rather than the master branding the slave so that everybody would know that the slave belongs to him, here we see the picture of the servant joyfully writing on his own hand that he belongs to this master. He knows who protects him, who helps him, who upholds and watches over him. He knows the one who has chosen him. And when we see Israel here in this passage, we should see the larger category of the people of God throughout time. 
in Christ, we are the people of God. We have been given the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are the ones who can say with joy, I belong to the Lord. God has chosen us. He has made us. He formed us in the womb. We are His. We belong to Him. Does that fill you with joy this morning? Does that spark excitement in your soul to know that you are His, that you can write on your hand, I am the Lord's. We belong to God. We are His people. And He is our God. He will not forsake what belongs to Him. He will not forget about what is His. He will not abandon what He has chosen. When we understand that we belong to God, then what a sense of assurance follows. For then nothing can separate us from Him if we belong to Him. And if we belong to God as His possession, then we should be devoted to Him. It follows that if we belong to God, what should be our response? The response should be devotion to Him. Our second point this morning is that there is no other God besides the Lord. Therefore, we should be devoted to Him. There is no other God, God says here. Here, Yahweh declares Himself to be the only God there is. And then He launches into a diatribe against idols. He's already done this a few times in the previous chapters that we have looked at. But this is the longest sustained discourse against the absolute folly and stupidity of idolatry and the worship of false gods. And the first question that should strike us here is, what is the connection between the first section that we just looked at, verses 1 to 5, and now this lengthy section, verses 6 to 20? What's the connection there? First he's talking about how we belong to God as his people, and then suddenly he switches to talk about how stupid idolatry is. What's the connection there? I think the connection is that when we truly understand that we belong to the Lord, that we are His, then right along with that, we understand that there is no one and nothing else to belong to. There's nothing else to devote ourselves to. God is the only master worthy of our total allegiance. And by the way, God is the only one who exists anyway, period. So there is no other rock to cling to. There is no other savior to trust in. There's no other deity to worship. God declares in the book of Exodus that his name is jealous. For he is jealous for the worship of his people. He will not share his glory with anyone else or with anything else. So let us look at verse 6. It says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So we see here in verses 6 and verse 8 that God declares two times that there's no God besides him. 
He is the first and the last. And if he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, then he would know, wouldn't he? He would know if there existed any other God. But he says, I do not know of any other. And if Yahweh is the only God, then the worship of anything else, the worship of anything else, means that you are worshiping part of the creation rather than the creator who made all things. If Yahweh is the only God, then the worship of anything else is pure and utter folly. That's what we see in verses 9 and following. God continues, he says, All who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. So here God declares that idols are nothing. They profit nothing. That is, they're not helpful for accomplishing anything. And then he challenges all the makers and craftsmen of idols to assemble together. For he will put them to utter shame. How is he going to do that? He's going to describe the process of how an idol is made. And how silly it all is. When you step back and really think about it. So verse 12, he describes the process. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over with poles. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches the line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. Cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree, or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rains nourish it. So the first thing that God points out is that an idol really comes from a metal worker, or from a woodworker. And as strong as an ironsmith may be, he still knows what hunger is. If he doesn't eat, he will grow faint and dizzy. And yet God is saying, and this one is someone who fashions an idol? And a carpenter may make a beautiful figurine out of wood, but he has selected the wood from the trees of the forest, whether cedar or cypress or oak. And these are trees that grow because of the rainfall that nourishes them. And really, who gives the rain that falls anyway? Is it not the one true and living God? So God is holding these things up to mockery. And he continues in verse 15. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it. And warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. They know not nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also made bread on its coals, I roasted meat and I've eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So here in this section, 
God emphasizes the foolishness of idolatry. For the same piece of wood that was used for fuel to fuel the fire is also fashioned into an idol that is worshipped. And if you think about it for just a moment, that's crazy. How could anyone expect a block of wood to save them? Especially a block of wood that has also been used as kindling to light to fuel a fire. That makes no sense. And we can sit back and shake our heads at the silliness of this. Those poor, stupid, ancient people who worshipped statues made of metal and wood. What were they thinking? But we have to remember that idolatry still exists today. Here in Mississauga. Now in 2019. And it may take a much more sophisticated form. But it's still idolatry. And it's still utter foolishness. Idolatry occurs whenever a created thing is valued over and above the Creator. Remember how the Apostle Paul describes idolatry in Romans chapter 1? Describing the sinfulness of humankind. He says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So how does the Apostle Paul define idolatry there? Idolatry is worshipping and serving the creature, the created thing, rather than the Creator. Therefore, idolatry occurs whenever a created thing pulls our devotion away from the Creator. If I am more devoted to washing and caring for my car than to God, then what has happened? My car has become an idol in my life. <clears throat> If I am more devoted to the upkeep and maintenance of my house than to God, then my house has become an idol. If electronics and gadgets and toys captivate me more than God, then these things are idols. If being out in the garden means more to me than God, then my garden has become an idol. If I am more devoted to my education and schooling than to the worship of God, my certificates and degrees are idols. If I am more devoted to my kids or to my spouse than to God, they have become idols. If I am more devoted to my job than to God, then even my job has become an idol in my life. Now our cars and houses and gardens and toys and loved ones and education, are these things bad in themselves? Should I stop washing my car? Out of fear of idolatry? No. Created things are meant to be enjoyed. They are graciously given by the Creator. 
Even that block of wood is not bad when it's being used as fuel for fire. Because the, the fire fed by the wood is used for warmth and cooking. The key word that I was repeating there is devotion and more than. And I may not bow down in front of my car and pray to it for help. I may not worship my car. But is it a created thing that is taking my devotion away from God the Creator? If the answer is yes, then I need to repent. Our devotion towards God brings Him glory and honor, and He will not share His glory with another. When we place our devotion elsewhere, directing it towards a created thing, no matter what it may be, then what are we doing? Well, we are lessening our devotion to God. Giving him less and less glory and honor. Taking glory from him and giving it to another. That is the essence of idolatry. And idolatry is always utter foolishness. Whether you're worshipping a half-burnt block of wood or devoting yourself to your iPhone. It doesn't matter how sophisticated the object of devotion is. If it is pulling devotion away from God the Creator, it's still an idol, and it's still foolishness. When we recognize that there is no other God, that Yahweh the Lord is the first and the last, and there is no other God besides Him, then we understand that He is the only one worthy of our worship, worthy of our full devotion. And so let us remove from before our eyes all the created things that might pull our devotion away from the Creator. So that we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So far we have seen that we belong to God, that there is no other God. And this brings us to the third and final point this morning. We should be devoted to God because he has declared that our sins are gone. If you look with me at verse 21, God again calls Jacob slash Israel his servant two times, once again. And again, he reminds Jacob slash Israel that he has formed them. This is calling back to mind the first section of this chapter. For God is reassuring his people that they belong to him. And if we belong to God, then he's not going to let go of us. He says here that he will not forget us. Then in verse 22, after God has reaffirmed his relationship with his people, now he declares that all of their transgressions against him have been blotted out. He's taken away their sin. He has redeemed them. And this is why they can return to him, because his fierce anger over their sin has been satisfied. 
He has punished them for their transgressions, but he will not let them go, and he has not forgetting them, forgotten them and left them alone. David, the psalmist said in Psalm 32, he said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And how true that is. When God has forgiven transit, transgression and atoned for sin and no longer counts iniquity against a person, what should be the response but pure blessedness and happiness and joy and praise and thanksgiving and gladness and delight and exaltation? And that's why in verse 23 in our text, it breaks out into praise. It says, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and he will be glorified in Israel. So here Isaiah the prophet invites all of creation, from the heights of the heaven to the depths of the earth, and all the mountains and forests in between, to praise the Lord with joyful singing. Why? Because the Lord has redeemed his people. But we may ask, well, upon what basis has God blotted out the transgressions of his people? How has God forgiven the sins of his people? In what way has he redeemed them and us? And here in this verse, verse 22, this is where we discover the gospel in our passage. God did not merely wave his divine hand and dismiss our sin. If he did that, then he would not be a just God. There must be a satisfaction made for his justice. There must be a sufficient payment offered. There must be a basis upon which God can then forgive transgression and sin. So what is that satisfaction? What is that sufficient payment that, that releases such joy in the people of God? What is the basis that allows God to forgive while still being perfectly just. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the altar of the cross upon which the perfect sacrifice was offered for sin. The pure and innocent Lamb of God himself. That is the basis of forgiveness for the people of that time. And it's the same basis of forgiveness for us today. There is no forgiveness of sin outside of Jesus Christ. And so when God is saying here in Isaiah 44, verse 22, that he has blotted out the sins and transgressions of his people, he is anticipating the perfect satisfaction that Jesus Christ will accomplish upon the cross of Calvary. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you can know that the Lord has redeemed you. And he is glorified in your life. And that ought to fill us with the same kind of joy that is talked about in verse 23. All creation rejoices over the salvation God has accomplished for his people. Verse 24 to the end. It says, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars, and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. 
who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Here God affirms yet again that his people belong to him. And that he is the only God, the only creator, the one in whom all wisdom and knowledge is found. He is the one who promises the restoration of the nation of Israel. And he is the one who shall use this Persian king, Cyrus the Great, here named in the Bible for the first time, fulfill his purposes of rebuilding both Jerusalem and the temple. This is our God. He is the only one. He is the God who formed us, who calls us by name, who calls us his servant, who has redeemed us by the precious blood of Christ, who has forgiven us, who has blotted out our transgressions, who continues to watch over us, who will fulfill his purpose in us, and who is worthy of all our devotion. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father God, we ask that you would fill our hearts with the joy the kind of joy that is mentioned in this passage that includes heaven and earth and everything in it. That kind of joy that comes out of the realization that we are a redeemed people. We are a saved people. We are a people whose sins and transgressions have been blotted out. We are a chosen people. A loved people. And Father, out of that realization that we belong to this amazing God, who is the only one, there is no other. For you alone are the first and the last. As we realize these things, Father, help us to understand with deeper wisdom the folly of idolatry. The folly of, of being devoted to a created thing over and above the creator who created us and formed us in the womb. Father, impress upon us not only how, how foolish it is, but how heinous it is and ungrateful it is to be devoted to created things in this life rather or more than you. And so, Father, as we examine our own hearts, and if we discover that, yes, there are things in our lives where we give greater devotion to those things rather than to you, that these things are pulling us away from you, then, Father, let us shun it as we should, shun it as an idol in our lives. Let us repent of any idolatry that we may discover. So that truly you are the one who receives our full devotion. 
that we give you thanks, yes, for all these creative things that you have given us graciously to enjoy. But Father, when that enjoyment becomes a form of worship, then we have taken things too far. And we have forgotten our maker, the one who has redeemed us and saved us, the one who calls us by name. And so, Father, I pray that this passage of Scripture, Isaiah 44, would stick with us this week. That it would echo in our minds. That as we laugh at the folly of taking half a block of wood, burning it in the fire, and using the other half to bow down to and worship, as we laugh at that, Father, let us tremble at the possible idols in our own lives. Whatever they may be, whatever form they may take, that are eclipsing our love and our devotion to you. That are coming in first place, and you are coming in second. Or worse, further down the list. Father, convict our hearts. Renew our joy in yourself. Help us not to put any creative thing above you. Renew us again, O Lord, we pray. That Jesus, in his work on the cross, would become the greatest thing in our lives. The reason we get up in the morning. The reason we can have happiness and joy throughout the day. And the reason that we can sleep contentedly at night. Father, we are truly grateful for the salvation you have accomplished through the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand it more and appreciate it more and love you more as a result. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray these things. Amen.